0: All right, well, let's turn together to uh, Joshua 7. Joshua chapter 7 is where we'll be today, continuing, uh, looking at the story of Israel going into the promised land. Last week, we saw Israel take Jericho by miracle, by way of miracle. That was their first battle and their first victory, entering the promised land, driving out the Canaanites, those pagans who have rejected the God of Israel Israel's now driving them out of the land, and they are taking up residency in the land that God has given them. And what we're going to see today is actually a, a continuation of the same theme that we've seen several times up to this point already in the book, and that's that God's holiness impacts all of us. The holiness of God impacts each and every single one of us. And I want to remind you of the the summary of the book of Joshua that I gave you for this book. The summary of the book is that Yahweh keeps His promises by powerfully saving His people through faith and purging the evil among them. Therefore, we shall courageously follow Him into blessing. Well, last week we saw God judge the Canaanites for their sin, purging evil from the land by taking out a whole city, the city of Jericho. And this week, we're going to see that He will do the same for His own people, Israel. He will purge the evil even among His own nation. They are not accepted just because they are His own nation. In fact, they're going to be disciplined in the same way. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll get into Joshua chapter 7. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for this church and the time that we have together to fellowship looking at Your Word. God, we ask that you would give us deep insight, that you would touch our hearts, that you would move us by what you have revealed. And Lord, we ask together that you would anoint me to preach, that I would not get in the way of your word, but that your word would be clear to your people here this morning. And we ask you this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a literary device that's employed in good writing. Uh, Good writing always includes all sorts of devices that can engage the reader when a reader is reading through a story. And one of those devices is called dramatic irony. And dramatic irony is when the author of a story gives the reader details that the characters in the story don't know. It's whenever you're told something about what's going on in the scene, and the characters involved in the scene are clueless to that vital information about what is happening. Well, here in Joshua chapter 7, this amazing event in Israel's history, it's recounted using dramatic irony. This story of Achan and the initial battle at Ai is told with dramatic irony. Last week, we, of course, saw the Israelites taking Jericho, and that was very straightforward. And now they move on to the next town. It's a town called Ai. It's the easiest town to spell. AI. And they're moving on to this, uh, to this city to take the next one. And we get some insight as to why they can't do that initially. And what we learn at the beginning of the chapter is that there's a man named Achan in Israel. And this man, Achan, he was a Judahite from the tribe of Judah. And he took some things that were supposed to be destroyed with all of Jericho, he took some of the first fruits of the battle. And let's read about that in verse 1, Joshua 7, verse 1. It says, "'Coming off the heels of victory at Jericho, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord' burned against the sons of Israel. He took some things that were under the ban, our text says. These were items that were to be destroyed. They were to be ruined. They were to be set apart for God as like a tithe in Israel's battles, the first plunder of the first battle. All of these things were to be put away as a sacrifice to God, as an act of worship to God. This is a uh, a fascinating element that we see in verse 1 in conjunction with this that permeates the chapter. Notice that it says Achan took some of these things. That's clear enough. Achan took things under the ban. But look at the beginning of the verse, and at the end of the verse, it says the sons, plural of Israel, acted unfaithfully. And at the end of the verse, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So even though these items were taken by one man, Achan, there's a judgment coming for the sons of Israel, and all of Israel is being held responsible for what has happened. They're considered guilty in some respect. They're held responsible for Achan collectively. If you look down at verse 11 with me, we'll get to this verse in a few moments, but same chapter, verse 11, look at what God says. Israel... Has sinned, and they have also transgressed my my covenant which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. God says that Israel, collectively, corporately, had committed a trespass against him. And that's quite interesting. Because this was only Achan's act, as we know of so far. And there's a a theory that some rabbis in Israel have. I'm going to share with you a quote from Rabbi Reuven Drucker. I don't know who he is, just that he's a Jewish rabbi. And he explains it this way. Because each Jew was not mindful of his neighbor's actions, Scripture considers the entire nation to be at fault. That could be. That may or may not be true, because all of Israel wasn't being mindful of Achan, wasn't watching over Achan, are now at fault. But I believe commentator, Christian commentator Martin Woodstra, he does a much better job summarizing what happened here. He says, Achan robbed the whole nation of the purity and holiness which it ought to possess before God. Corporate guilt and individual responsibility go hand in hand in this story. So, what's the big takeaway right out of the gate here. As we consider Achan taking some of these things as an individual man, Israel collectively being held responsible for what has happened, what's our big takeaway? Well, sin always has impact, doesn't it? Individual sin always has impact that affects other people. Sin never just affects ourselves in this life, it always affects affects others. And in this story, we're about to see that in very vivid imagery because in the, in the next verse, we have Israel going to battle. Israel goes off into battle, and we see how Achan's sin affected the nation. Let's read verses 2 through 5 together. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai, They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them down on the descent, so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So the battle here between Israel and Ai, it wasn't supposed to go this way. It wasn't supposed to be like this. If you can imagine a couple of high school football teams, let's say Sky Ridge up there in Lehi, where they're big and strong, and they got the money and the Samoans, they're good at football, and maybe they're playing beaver, Okay. You know what to expect in that football game, don't you? It's going to be pretty one-sided. But then all of a sudden, Beaver put up the mercy rule against Skyrich. The referees called mercy in the third quarter because they're not uh, the, the one team was winning so much, the team you expected to lose. Well that's kind of what's going on here. The spies from Israel went up and spied out the land and they weren't impressed. They said, huh. Ah, Two or 3,000 Israelites, that'll be fine. Just send a few people up there. Don't make everybody go. It'll be over in a hurry. They are few, the spies said. Did you see that in the text? For the people are few, verse 3. They're few. Francis Schaeffer reminds us that they either had uh, faith or they had pride here. They had confidence, right? (laughs) Well, this was either coming from faith. Ah, we only need a few. God's going to give us victory. Or it came from pride. And I tend to think it was the latter. It came from a prideful heart. And certainly, many were wondering, how could this happen that Ai killed 36 Israelites and ran them back down the hill? Well, because of the dramatic irony of the story, we know how it happened, don't we? We know that it was because of Achan's sin that God then weakened Israel. You see, it wasn't that God made Ai strong. That's not what happened here. God made Israel weak. He exposed them, and He brought them before an army where they weren't going to win. Because of Israel's sin, they were weak, and the spies weren't careful. I think they had a misplaced confidence here. You'll notice where it says in verse 3 again, don't make everyone go up there. It says, don't make all the people toil up there. If you remember, Jericho was down by the river, it's down low in elevation, and Ai was up on a hill, and it was hot. This is, this is in the summertime, it's very hot, and the idea of going all the way up the hill with all these people into battle during the summertime, during the heat, well, uh, that just didn't seem like something they needed to do, and so they minimized their stewardship here for the sake of ease, and certainly they had to have in the back of their minds, well, God promised us the victory, and so let's just take a few well, God was bringing about His judgment on His people, wasn't He? And there's more irony, even more irony here. If you remember the the parents of this generation, the generation that came before this generation, they were the ones who went to Kadesh Barnea, the 12 spies, 10 were bad, 2 were good, And they looked at the people, and they said, whoa, those guys are big. We're going to be like grasshoppers in their sight. They overestimated the enemy because they didn't have faith. And here, as they look at Ai, they're underestimating the enemy. And in both cases, God is using this to judge His people, and they're making these judgments for their own peril. Well, the battle was a serious failure. You just saw in the text that 36 Israelite men were killed, and the whole army was chased downhill. I don't know when the last time it was that you ran down a hill, a steep hill, but that's no fun, and that's difficult, especially when you have a few thousand people. They were running downhill in the heat away from this place. One commentator said, the greater place, Jericho, had fallen with ease, but the lesser place stood before them. Can you imagine if you were one of those 36 warriors as you're there in Ai? supposed to be an easy victory, not not just because it's smaller than Jericho, but because the Lord's on your side. You have a spear or whatever device they were using thrust through and you receive a fatal blow. What are you thinking at that time? You're thinking something had to have gone wrong. This isn't what God promised. God said He would go before us and He would drive out the people before us, but that's not what happened. And it says, again, there in verse five, "The hearts of the people melted. They became as water. Israel was having so much success. the river was parted, Jericho had fallen miraculously, and now this small town was winning." Well Joshua's response was quite dramatic. Let's read that together, six. It says, "Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, "'Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us, if we had only been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, What can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Their hearts were melting. Two times in the story up to this point, we read about Israel's enemies' hearts melting. And now Israel's hearts are melting. With the elders, Joshua fell before the ark of the Lord. This is the presence of the Lord. Remember, the ark of the covenant was a symbol. It symbolized God's presence. And Joshua with the elders, the leaders of Israel, they went to the right place. They went to the presence of God and they fell before God. And remember that Joshua didn't know what we know. He didn't know about Achan. He didn't know about this hidden sin. He didn't know that God's anger was burning against his own people at this moment. And so he utters a cry of self-preservation. If only we had been willing, Joshua says. If only we had been willing to not receive this gift of land that you gave us. If only we were willing to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. A cry of self-preservation. But in any case, he's certainly distressed. Look at verse 8 again with me. Look what Joshua says. O Lord... What can I say? Have you been there? Have you been so distressed and so confused and there are so many details that you don't know and you're just caught and stuck and you feel pressed in from every side? This is a good prayer. Go to the presence of God and if you have nothing to say, tell Him, Oh Lord, what can I say? And the promise for the Christian in Romans chapter 8 is that when we are so pressed down and and we are so much in despair beyond the utterance of words, the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us. And that's a promise you can hang on to. Joshua went to the right place, and he doesn't know what to say. And he goes to a source of strength the rock of His salvation, and He actually cries out for the glory of God at the end of verse 9 when He says, what will you do for your great name? Well, God's response was to purge the evil among Israel. Yahweh's response was to create holiness in Israel by removing that which was tarnishing it. And this is how God keeps His promises. This is how God saves is through holiness because God is holy. He is infinitely holy. And God cares about the way we live. And God has called us out as children of light in Jesus Christ to live holy lives. And even back in Israel, that constant was that standard remained. God demands holiness. So Israel was not allowed to go on without taking care of this sin problem. And we read God's response starting in verse 10. This is what He says to Joshua. This is what He will do for His great name. It says, "...the Lord said to Joshua, "'Rise up! "'Why is it that you have fallen on your face? "'Israel has sinned, "'and they have also transgressed My covenant which I commanded them. "'And they have taken some of the things under the ban.' and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. The covenant was transgressed. Israel had broken the law, their standard for living. The spoil of Jericho that was to be a tithe to Yahweh. Someone tried to rob God of His glory, God says. A man has tried to take the glory that belongs to me, and he has hidden it. He has hidden his sin, and this has to be addressed. And these are strong, strong, serious words. Do you see that in verse 12? God says that his presence would no longer be for them if they glossed over this issue. God says, You will not have my power on your side anymore if you ignore this issue. You cannot stand if you ignore this hidden sin. You will be accursed if you continue on in the state that you're in. This is as strong of language as you'll see from the mouth of God. Accursed. You won't be able to stand. I won't be with you. You see, because of the Lord's holiness, His people must take sin very seriously. you agree with me this morning? Because of the holiness of God, God's people must take sin extremely seriously. God's people are to be set apart, and He will not allow sin to hide. He'll expose it. When I was in uh, kindergarten, I went to a a rural country school in Smithton, Missouri. And uh, when I was in kindergarten, because both my parents worked, they needed some extra time from when I got off of school before they got off work to get me, and I went to a program called Kingdom Kids. It was a Bible program for little kids. And I went, and apparently I did okay, I I got a trophy somewhere along the line. I have no idea what I did, uh, but I got a trophy. And, and I learned some things about the Bible. Well, at some point, uh, my parents had, had the convenience to pick me up earlier, and I was, I was taken out of that class. But I had taken home something that we were supposed to take home. It was this dowel rod that was probably about eight inches long, and it had this nylon, shiny, light blue ribbon on it that we used for some sort of activity. And I had it at home, and it was in my closet. And I never went back to that program, and I was never able to earn this little ribbon. And I was just five, six, seven years old. Uh, it took me a few times to pass kindergarten. To may and, uh, but I may have been 10. But uh, I had this ribbon that was just in my room, and it was in my room all through my elementary years. And that was constantly a source of guilt for me. And I, you know, I didn't know how to process any of that as a, as a youngster. I just knew it wasn't mine. I felt like I stole, and, and I felt like I stole from God. God's people gave this to me. And I don't know what it's worth, I don't know what to do with it. And I think God used that from a really early age to convict me of sin, even though as I, you could receive good counsel on that and someone would say, "Hey, it's not your fault, it's just a little piece of material." But it was always there like it had eyes looking right back at me in my room, always reminding me that that wasn't mine. It was a source of guilt. Well, God's way with things that are hidden, things that people should be guilty of, feel guilty about, His way is always to confront the sin, to bring about confession of the sin. And, you know, in the book of Romans, we're told it's God's kindness that leads to repentance, and the tool that He uses in His kindness is so often just discipline, isn't it? And God's way is to discipline his children toward confession and restoration and reconciliation. And that's what's about to happen. You can just feel this narrative is just like pregnant here. We're ready, we're coming to a moment here where it's going to get dramatic. There's a reckoning that's about to take place. And we need to be reminded that hiding from God is not the way that we take care of sin. You can't put a blanket over your sin. You can't put your sin in a closet. It has to be addressed. Hiding comes from the fall. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, just to remind you, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8, we read this about Adam and Eve. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. You can't hide from the Almighty. You can't hide a thing from the Almighty. God will find you out. And Yahweh's prescription here is to address this sin publicly. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, look at what God says to Joshua. Rise up, Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near. By families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come one or shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the band shall be burned with fire and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Well, this is a, a very vivid death penalty that God commands here, isn't it? The one who has done this is to be burned with fire. It doesn't get much more extreme than that from a human perspective as what could happen to another person, but to die and to be burned to death. And the process follows just as God instructed they were to separate out by tribes and then by clan, family, and then by family, one by one until the individual is absolutely exposed. And this man Achan, that we read about all the way back in the first verse, he is now exposed in Israel as the one who has caused calamity on the people. I'll tell you about another time when I was a, a little boy. We had a, uh, uh, this is where Matthias gets it. <clears throat> so we, um, in our basement, my dad had, had dressed it up. He's a big NASCAR fan. And our, our tile in the basement was black and white checkered. And uh, he had his beer signs up, and, and then there was this big billiards uh, pool table. And they had just gotten from somewhere these really nice pool sticks. And I had some friends over at my house. And when you are a young man, maybe I was a boy, I don't know what I was, I was acting like a boy, uh, those pool sticks, you look at those and you think, that would make a real good pole vault. <laughs> and. Uh, so, the next thing you know, we were running and off we go with the pole vault. And there were the cue the screws into itself. It snapped. And instead of going to my parents and pleading for mercy, I put it back together gently and put it back on the rack and thought, maybe they'll never, ever use that one again. <laughs> well, it wasn't long. Uh, and uh, I was asked to come downstairs. And there I was, this thing that had broken. I don't even know if I was the one who did it, but I know I'm the one who hid it. I was called out and I was told to confess. I was singled out. There was no, nowhere else for me to go. This thing that had happened that was wrong was no longer hidden, but it was exposed. And that's exactly what's going on with Achan. You see, the process that God designed here is intentionally dramatic, isn't it? It didn't have to be this process. He could have just told Joshua, hey, it was Achan, call him out. That's not what happened. God had all Israel line up. Everyone, feast your eyes as God whittles down in His eternal knowledge the one who had transgressed the law. What was hidden became exposed. I want to share with you this quote from Francis Schaeffer. This is really good. And actually, Mark talked to us about this last week uh, between a couple of the hymns the same idea that God knows and sees all things. Francis Schaeffer says, Achan thought nobody knew, but God knew. While it is wonderful to have an infinite God, this means we must take His omniscience into account in our daily lives. There is nothing we do that God does not know. There is no night so dark no coal mine so deep, no astronaut so far out in space that God does not know it. God knows every single thought, every single action. Well, Achan is exposed, and let's drop down to verse 19 to hear what Joshua says as Achan stands before all Israel. Verse 19 says, Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. That phrase, give glory and give praise to God, may sound a little strange that it's right here in the text. You might expect Joshua to say something else, but this is actually a a common Jewish formula to say, confess your sin. He's calling Achan here to confess his sin, and we actually see it in John chapter 9. You could just make a note. The man who was born blind, his parents are come forward, and and, uh, the Pharisees say, give glory to God. Why is he blind? Confess. Confess your sin. And that's what he's being told. And, And just a quick note, it's very important that sinners confess their sins specifically. We don't let our children in our house say, I'm sorry, and let that be it. I always say, for what? tell me let's get it out in the open if everybody gets their cards on the table we can work with work with each other right we can get something done but as long as we're trying to take an edge off of sin or or cover this part of it or or make it sound not as bad you're not going to move forward sin should be confessed and that's what achan does verse 20 achan responds he answered joshua and said truly i have sinned against the lord the god of israel and this is what i did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold, fifty shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Clothing and money. Man hasn't changed much, has he? He was tempted by clothes and gold and silver. Have you ever wondered how it is that little rodents that we try to catch, how, how dumb they can be? That little glob of peanut butter sitting right there under a little guillotine thing, what are you doing? <laughs> well, if you put enough sweetness on it, if you make it look visually appealing, if, you know, whatever the case may be to attract the rodent, there they go. They'll even eat poison if you dress it up enough. Well, this clothing, this gold, this silver, that was poison to Achan. God said, that's not for you. That's for me. That is to be destroyed. But he was carried away by his own sin. He was attracted to it. And he gives us the three stages. You see that in verse 21? He gives us three steps. I saw it, I coveted it, and I took it. It's as simple as that, people. That's how weak we are in our flesh. We are so, so weak. Doesn't this sound just like David and Bathsheba? He saw, he coveted, he took. The law doesn't just say, do not covet. It says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. David did. And here we see Achan. He's coveting clothes and silver and gold. We do well to remember James chapter 1. This is a powerful passage. James 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Remember too, 1 Timothy 6:10, the love of money, it's the root of what? All evil. And we see all this happening in Achan's life. And the end of that is death. Keep reading with me. Verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised up over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. The Valley of Achor. we see the valley of Acor show up again. It's in Isaiah 65. It's in Hosea 2. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, the valley of Acor is going to be redeemed. It's actually going to be a place of rest, Isaiah 65 says, and a place of hope, Hosea 2 says. God's going to redeem this valley. God can redeem this valley. God's going to redeem that valley. Well, we see here God's holiness boldly presented with graphic imagery. If you remember all the way back to verse 1 of this chapter, it said that Yahweh's anger was blazing against the sons of Israel. And now we see that manifested in fire itself as they were stoned with stones and then burned. You might wonder, why Achan's sons and daughters? Doesn't the law say that children won't be punished for the sins of their parents? Well, let's keep in mind God also says that He visits the iniquity under the the second, third, fourth generation. But I think it's most likely here that Achan's sons and daughters were accomplices in his sin. That seems pretty straightforward to me. Why would they be punished right here with Achan? It's likely, I mean, he was hiding his stuff in the tent after all. They probably knew and they were accomplices with his transgression. And the entire nation now accompanies Joshua and they put them to death all together. And they made yet one more memorial. We've been reading about memorial stones in the book of Joshua, (laughs) remembering how God brought them through the Jordan. They made a memorial of 12 stones so they'd always remember what God did miraculously to bring them across that treacherous river. And now there's one more memorial. Notice the author says, this memorial is there to this day. Every time they looked at that memorial, they remembered this event, Achan, His sons, his daughters, his oxen, his sheep, everything that he had destroyed because of sin. And they probably had headstones for the 36 soldiers, too. They probably had a way to remember these 36 men who were killed. They were destroyed because of one man's sin, covering it up. And the whole nation then had to suffer and was held accountable by Almighty God. We do well to recognize this morning that by nature, we are all deserving of the same punishment that Achan faced, aren't we? In our natural state, in our flesh, we are all deserving to receive punishment from God because of our sin and our attempts to cover it up. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can read through just the basic moral code of, of the Bible. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever coveted? You, we all have. Of course you have. And even one sin against God is an eternal transgression because, because God is eternal. And we deserve an eternal punishment for our sin. We deserve eternal fire and destruction for our sin. But the good news of the gospel is this, my friends, I hope you're not starting to check out because this is where it's just finally getting good. The good news is that there was one who was destroyed in our stead, wasn't there? There was one who took on the destruction that we deserved. There was one who bore the death that we had earned for ourselves. The Bible says, the wages of sin is death. What we have earned for ourselves is death. But Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin, that we might escape Achan's destruction, that we might escape the eternal punishment that we deserve. Jesus died and rose again, that if we believe in His finished work, we're reconciled to God once for all, never to face punishment again. Romans also says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None. Not one ounce of God's wrath remains over your head. You are utterly free, utterly embraced, totally forgiven. All sins, past, present, future, wiped away in Jesus. And we don't have memorial stones to build up, but we have a cross, don't we? Just as Israel would look to those stones and see where Achan had to pay for his own sins by death the punishment He justly deserved. And as they would remember time after time the seriousness of God's holiness, so we too can look to the cross and we see the holiness of God. We see God Himself became man and poured out out of love unto death for us that all might be wiped away. And that now we, we could be set on a path toward holiness, to grow in holiness freely, not to earn anything from God, but because we've been given everything from God. Not trying to earn His favor, not trying to become a child, but being adopted into His family, being called a child. We have all of God, and we march toward Him in this life. What we will be has not yet come but day by day we're being renewed in the inner man from one glory to another and we're chasing the face of Christ, aren't we? We have the cross behind us and before us. This life is for Jesus, for the holiness of God. Now I do want to say a word to those Christians who might be living as Achan now because we shouldn't be so naive to think that we're all doing well and being forthright in this life. I I would wager to guess there are Christians in this room who are trying to cover sin, who are trying to put away what's under the ban to cover it up and to go home and enjoy it. Back in verse 13, Joshua was told to tell the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow God is going to do a work. Achan heard that Achan went home. He went back to his tent where those things were. He couldn't consecrate himself. He was living in sin. He didn't put the things away. He didn't openly confess. He didn't come clean. But he tried to entertain. He kept on engaging with this sin that God hated. And he came back the next day, and God called him on it, didn't He? God called him out Well, let me tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, God sees and God disciplines. We do well to remember Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. They tried to lie to God. Didn't work. The Corinthians didn't take seriously the remembrance of the Lord's death through communion. Well, God interacted with them too, didn't he? God calls His church to discipline itself, that we are to confront one another in our sin as we move toward holiness together. In fact, as you read in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and He warns them, I'm going to put out your light if you don't confront this error. God's way is always discipline in His kindness confession, confrontation of sin. You can't be restored. You can't be reconciled. You can't be at peace with God or His people if you have this going on. Well, God is ready to forgive. I want to give you a word of hope. We live on this side of the cross, and God stands ready to forgive in Christ. God is there ready to welcome you back. Achan, he got the law here, didn't he? for what he did. He got the law of God, but you know what you're offered today? Grace. God is here offering you grace to be restored in a spirit of gentleness, but you have to come clean. You have to confess. You have to say, I want my Lord more than anything else in this life. I want to please Him, and God honors that desire. And He will bring His people into your life. And through His Spirit, through His people, He will do a work in your heart. And you can walk with God at peace and in holiness this life. That's why we're here together. God gives us the gift of each other that we may be restored and be healed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have grace in Christ, that the law was given under Moses, but in Christ we have grace revealed. Lord, restore our hearts. Convict us and prompt us and guide us into restoration where it's needed. And help us to walk through this life honestly, openly, pursuing you for your glory. We love you because you first loved us. Help us to show you that love by the way that we live, by embracing the cross, by cherishing the work of Jesus more than anything else, even life itself. God, we love you, and we ask your blessing on this day and the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.